True Gay Crime contains coarse language, adult themes, and content that is violent and disturbing. If at any time you feel you need help, please refer to the toll-free crisis lines in the show notes. And welcome to another episode of True Gay Crime. I'm your host, Patrick Morano. And on today's episode, we cover the grinder killer, Stephen Port, a man with a proclivity for drugging and raping twinks using G, T, and poppers. If you don't know what those are, you will find out in this story. They're drugs. But first, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, just a quick reminder that you can rate and review True Gay Crime. It really, really, really helps me out content-wise, and it tells Apple to spread True Gay Crime love in the podcast universe. And if you're really loving my stuff, why not consider supporting the podcast by becoming a patron? You'll find a link in the show notes of this episode. Okay, so to help put us in the time and place of this story, let's look at some events that were happening in the world in 2014. I know, it doesn't seem that long ago, because it wasn't. But guess what? When you start looking at the things that happened in those times, you're like, oh yeah, wow. Trust me, it helps you. It helps put you in that place. Okay, so in 2014, we lost two comedy legends, Robin Williams and Joan Rivers. Neither of them were from natural causes. So if you remember, uh, Robin Williams, he was 63 at the time. He committed suicide in his California home on August 11th. And his wife later revealed that while the actor who had previously battled substance abuse was sober at the time of his death, he was struggling with the early stages of Parkinson's disease. And I mean, you know, as an actor, we all know his stuff. I mean, he was just OTT, Doubtfire, and all of his roles, uh, comedy, just crazy comedy. And then to be, to have that sort of dual personality of being such a funny person to the rest of us, but then being so sad on the inside for yourself is, is really the saddest part of that. And then, of course, you probably remember, 81-year-old, Joan Rivers, remember? She goes in for um, some throat surgery, um, and there were complications from that, and they put her under for the throat surgery. Um, apparently, the, um, the clinic performing the surgery made a number of mistakes that contributed to her death. So they put her under. She never came back. She ended up in a coma, and she just never came back from that. And that is the danger of going under, under the knife, under for surgery. I mean, uh, I, I at the time I I thought I had read that it was for like more plastic surgery, but which would have been really sad because if you think that she died because of an elective surgery versus something that she would have no choice, like if it was a throat surgery and something that you know was life threatening or would have been a problem and they had to go in and and do that, then you know not as bad versus something that you chose to sort of go under the knife for but but sad i had seen her live and she was um she had these giant cue cards at the front of the stage but like taped down at the front of the stage and just like from left to right and then she just like went from left to right so she could like glance down at the cue cards with this giant writing of course as the audience you couldn't see it until you kind of stood up and then you were like oh my god the front of the state because we were pretty close the front of the stage had like cue cards taped all along the hey listen when you're she must have been when i saw her she was in her 70s so i mean you know listen if i'm in my 70s and i'm on a stage i'll be happy to have cue cards i'll need cue cards um okay also in 2014 and this is interesting because if you're listening to the podcast, that means that you know the story of the Hart family murder-suicide. Um, and you remember that their son was in that viral video uh, hugging the cop at one of the Black Lives Matter um, rallies. Um, and, you know, that, that picture went viral. And the, the reason that, you know, there, that there were even like Black Lives Matter and we're even talking about a lot of the catalyst for the whole thing was Michael Brown. And that event happened in 2014 because there was the fatal use of force by police in, uh, the, uh, violent riots that broke out in St. Louis, um, in August, an unarmed teen named Michael Brown was fatally shot 
by a police officer. And witnesses allegedly stated that Brown had his hands up at the time of shooting, which, of course, we also covered in the Hart family podcast. So that happened in 2014, and that was the catalyst for the movement. And then, which led to the Hart family's son being in that viral video and just snowballing. Life is intertwined, isn't it? It's just six degrees. So let's talk about the songs from that time. So the number one song in 2014 was Happy. Clap along if you feel like a room without a roof. Is that it? Like a room without a roof? Did I just make that up? Anyway, Pharrell Williams, which should be number one. Like, what a fun song. So that's good. Uh, Break Free, Ariana Grande was on the list. Chandelier, remember that? Okay, I'm not going to sing all of them. (laughs) I'm just going to go through the list and sing all of them. Um, Anyway, you know Chandelier. Sia, that was a huge one. And then um, It's All About the Bass, uh, the Bass. Megan Trainer, remember her? Is she still around? She could be. She could be huge right now. You know what? The thing is, I'm so not, mm, I'm so not hooked up with like what's cool and what's now and what's happening. So, but anyways, I haven't heard from Megan Trainer in a while. I wonder what she's up to. Um, oh gosh, Taylor Swift, you gotta shake it off. Remember that? And Anaconda, Nicki Minaj. Doesn't that seem like Anaconda was like the '90s or something? Is that just me? Why does that feel like that's a really old song? Anyway. And then I Will Never Let You Down is also a song that I loved. And that's Rita Ora. Where is she these days? Oh, it's probably just me. I'm just not hooked up. I'm just not down with the music. Um, okay, so that's a little bit about 2014. I hope you are firmly rooted now in that time-space reality because it's going to help with the story. Is it, Patrick? Yeah, why not? It's fun to talk about. So my sources... Uh, for this are, uh, I got lots from Murderpedia. Thanks, Murderpedia. Also, independent.co.uk and the telegraph.co.uk. Obviously, this is a British story. All right. I'm not going to do an accent. Don't ask me to do accents. Not good at them. Ain't going to happen. Actually, do you know that impression? Ain't going to happen. Oh, God, that's a bad impression. Oh, God, I'm so bad at impressions. <laughs> I wish I was good. People, it's uh, whenever somebody does impressions, I'm just so in awe of that talent. Anyway, ain't gonna happen. You know, that's Victor Newman from The Young and the Restless. I don't sound like him, but that's what he says all the time. Okay, so let's um, talk about GHB for a second because it is integral to the this story. So GHB, so Stephen Port was using GHB uh, to get his victims immobilized and, and unconscious, basically. So the drug, just a little background, if you're not familiar, as familiar with GHB as I am intimately familiar with. Okay, so the drug was originally manufactured as a medical anesthetic. Now it's often simply known as G and it's abused in low dosages to produce short-lived euphoria. Now, it can cause dizziness, nausea, uh, and then drowsiness. This is depending on how much you take, of course. Drowsiness, unconsciousness, and eventually coma, respiratory failure, cardiac arrest, and death. So, one of the particular dangers presented by the drug is that whether it's presented as as a powder or as a liquid, it's colorless. And um, so, it can be readily used to spike a drink. So, you might know it as the date rape drug. Um, and it just renders, I mean, you can just dump it in somebody's drink. It's colorless. They won't know. Um, especially if it's an alcohol or a strong tasting drink, they're certainly not going to be able to taste it. And then the person, what happens, I mean, it's extremely dangerous to mix with alcohol. P.S. Don't do it. Um, and... What was I saying? Oh, yeah. So the effect basically is if you dump that in somebody's drink, they're going to just seem drunk. You know, they're not going to be acting more oddly. I mean, if you do it in the right dose of the that you're supposed to do for a date rape, you know, cocktail, they're going to feel woozy, dizzy. And outwardly to everyone else, they're just going to seem like they've had too much to drink. 
right? So it's not, nothing's going to seem out of the ordinary. You're in a bar, so you know they just had one too many. Um, so it's really, but it's really easy to get the measurements wrong. It's really easy to do too much. It's really dangerous for that. Um, okay, so let's start with the story of the grinder killer, Stephen Ports. In 2012, Stephen Port's first victim had just turned 19 when Port reached out to him on Grinder. They decided to meet at Port's flat where there was a bit of small talk and the feeling, the overall feeling was very friendly, it was relaxed, he was being very polite. Port disappears into the kitchen, he returns with two glasses of red wine. The two men are chatting, they're drinking. Suddenly, the 19-year-old reaches the bottom of his glass. He's done his drink. He tilts the glass to get the last bit of wine, and he notices something at the bottom of the glass, some kind of, like, congealed substance. Was it a powder? He didn't know. Putting the glass down on the table, he immediately started to feel dizzy, and it was difficult for him to concentrate or form sentences. He wanted to confront Port, ask him what he had done, and then storm out of the flat, but he was too paralyzed by the drug to even move. Port heaves the boy over his shoulder, takes him into the bedroom, where he proceeded in undressing him. In and out of consciousness, the boy remembers being raped by Port until finally he passes out completely. When the boy goes back to school in the following days, he tells his friend about the experience, who goes with him to get checked up by the doctor due to the rape and to the drugs. Obviously, make sure that he's okay. And the 19-year-old was maybe the first victim, but he certainly was not the last. And all things considered, he's lucky to have survived the encounter, as we're about to find out. Okay, Stephen Port is born in Southend-on-Sea. At one year old, the family moved to East London. No surprise, he's described as a loner and he's bullied at school, which seems par for the course for these people. His teachers say he's a quiet child. Always look out for the quiet ones, right? And after high school, he goes to art college, but he drops out. But I was like, you know how many courses I started and dropped out? So I hope that's not what makes a serial killer because then I'm a ticking time bomb. Um, neighbors say the grown-up Stephen Port did weird things like play with children's toys, and one of his former partners even breaks up with him due to his childish attitudes, which I find very interesting. Port comes out of the closet in his mid-twenties, which I find is kind of late in, the, in these days, which sort of tells me that he's struggled a bit with himself and accepting himself as well. He then moves into a flat in Barking, London, and works as a chef at a bus depot in West Ham, which is also in East London. Imagine, like, a chef at a bus depot? I wonder what kind of qualifications you need to be a chef. I, and I feel like using the term chef is probably um, being a little generous. Chef, really? How about cook? Or how about prep cook? I mean, it's a bus depot, for Christ's sake. But he does go on TV... This is crazy. He goes on TV in an episode of Master Chef. He's well, like in the background. He's one of the helper chefs. So Master Chef has celebrities and they're cooking, and he was one of the helper guys in the back in the kitchen. But he's there. He's on TV. So I don't know how he went from a bus depot to TV, but that's show business, kid. Um, and he's super fit. He goes to the gym. He's really concerned about his appearance. He wants to look good, and he's actually going bald. And he wears a blonde wig because, well, he didn't want to be bald. So, um, you can see all of the pictures on my Instagram or on Facebook. So, it's around this time that Port creates his profile on Grindr and other gay and bi social networks for sex and dating. His bio changes from site to site. Uh, and one of them, he's pretending to be a grad, a graduate of Oxford University. Uh, in another one, he's a member of the Royal Navy. And in another one, he's a special needs teacher. So... I wonder why he chose those. Can you? So the Royal Navy. Okay, that sounds hot. Like who doesn't want to hook up with like a Navy guy? I get that one. Oxford University. Okay, so you're trying to impress people with your intelligence or your accomplishments. A special needs teacher. That's very specific. I wonder why he chose that as part of his bio. I mean, was it so people thought he was nice? Maybe so people would think he was a, a nice and caring person? Who can say? We'll never know. Okay. Port likes him young. As we, say, as we saw with his first victim of 19 years old, his second victim is only 20 when they meet in June 2014 on a gay website. 
the boy feels comfortable with Port, saying that he felt safe and he's a very nice guy. So obviously Port had a whole shtick down where he just came across as a really trustworthy, nice person. And that is so dangerous. So unfortunately for the boy, Port is anything but nice and trustworthy. And after drinking a non-alcoholic drink, the boy feels dizzy and he passes out. When he comes to, he can't control his body. He can't move his limbs. He wants to shout, he wants to scream for help, but he just can't make a sound. We'll never know what really happened while the boy is passed out, but once he's conscious, Port picks him up, puts him in the car, drives him to the station, the train station at Barking, and leaves him there. Barely able to move or talk, the boy is huddled in a corner when the transport police find him. So, I mean, he got out alive. Again, that's a plus in this story. He's incoherent, he's in distress, and he's unsteady on his feet. He starts vomiting green stuff, which is due, which they find out later is um, an overdose of GHB. So, victim number two survives with his life, but Port is getting more and more confident with each victim, and the next one to cross his path doesn't fare as well. Alright, enter Anthony Walgate. He's 23 years old, he's a fashion student, he's clever, he's funny, he's talented, and he has dreams of being a famous fashion designer. He works part-time as an escort to pay his bills for school. Anthony's very careful when he comes to his clients. I mean, God. And he was being careful. So, I mean, it's, it's a dangerous, let's just say it's a dangerous profession, even when you're being careful. Look, Because look what happens. So, anyway, he's, he's being careful. Um, he always gets an address in advance of going to wherever he is. And he always has a photograph. And he gives that information to others so they know where he is and who he's with. Which is smart right at least people know where you were going who you were with when you were last seen so on june 15th 2014 port reaches out to anthony through an escort site called sleepy boys and he offers him 800 pounds for an overnight stay on june 17th of course port has no savings at all and he certainly would never pay that kind of money like he doesn't he just doesn't have that so he was never going to pay that but port arranges to meet anthony at barking station uh, he arrives at a quarter past ten. Anthony is never seen alive again. Inside Port's flat, he offers Anthony a drink, which he accepts. He drinks, he feels dizzy, and he passes out. Port takes him to the bedroom, rapes him, and then realizes that he's killed him. Not knowing what to do, Port leaves the body of his victim at home, dead in the flat. He gets dressed, and he leaves to work the night shift. Yeah. He doesn't call in sick, he doesn't skip work, he goes to work. I guess in his mind he must have been like, okay, I gotta act like everything's normal, I gotta think about this, I'm just going to leave this here for now and reassess. Anyway, he gets home around 4am, he dresses the dead body of Anthony and he plants an empty vial of G in the pocket to make it look like he had he overdosed himself and then he disposes of his phone because obviously he fears the police are going to see the communications between him uh, and port and then he drags the young man out to the front of his building and he props him up against the wall making it look like he had just passed out there then he takes his own phone he dials 999 and he tells the operator that he just happened across a young man slouched over the uh, slouched over on the ground outside of his building, he, and he tells the operator he thinks he might be drunk or suffering a seizure. I mean, wow. You know, most people put a body in a trunk, they drive out to the middle of the woods, they bury it, they dump it in a... This guy is so lazy that he just drags the body to the front of his building and pretends that he came across it there. I mean, that's risky. I mean, and then he calls 999. So emergency uh, services arrive. Anthony is pronounced dead, of course, around 8 a.m. So at first, the authorities actually buy Port's version of things. That is, until they find out that he had hired Anthony as an escort for the night. So it didn't take the police long for them to figure out that he was lying. Port tries to deny it's true, uh, but the police know otherwise. A pathology report shows that Anthony died of a drug overdose of G. So, Port changes his story, and he admits that Anthony had come to visit him in his flat, but that the G was his, and he overdosed himself. Then he tells the police that he moved the body outside because he panicked, and he didn't want the police to think he had anything to do with the, with the death, or think that it was murder. 
See, the thing with me, here's the thing. If you tell the police one story and then they find out dirt on you and they realize that you that you had lied and then you're like, oh, okay, no, no, this is what really happened. You have zero credibility at this point. Like you've already lied. Why would we think that now you're telling the truth? Clearly everything out of your mouth is going to be a lie and a cover-up, right? So he's actually convicted of perverting the course of justice by making a false police statement. So they can't pin the murder on him, but he did lie to the police. So like I said, he's convicted of perverting the course of justice by making a false police statement. And in March 2015, he goes to jail for like two seconds. And then he's released a couple months later and he's electronically tagged. This is a, a situation, again, where the police had the person, the right person in custody, but they couldn't hold them because there wasn't enough. This happens so often where the police bring somebody into custody. They don't have enough. They have to let them go. And then they, the person goes out and does more things and more horrendous things. Um, so basically, he gets away with murder, uh, but the police have their eye on him for all the good that it does the next slew of victims. The police are completely useless in this story. We're going to cover that in a little bit. So so now we have Gabriel Kavari. He's a 22-year-old Slovakian who needed a place to stay. Uh, Port, Port reaches out to him and he offers him a place at his. He's basically like, dude, I have room. Come stay with me. So on August 23rd, 2014, Kavari moves in with Port. Poor guy. Gabriel... Kavari was just Port's type. He's young, he's slender, he's a twink. In fact, in a correspondence with Port's friends, he tells them that they should come meet his new Slovakian twink flatmate. Gabriel does not feel the same way about Port at all. He just wanted a place to, to live. He didn't want to be hooking up with Port at all. So he messages his friends saying that he had to sleep on the sofa because he didn't want to sleep in the bed with Port. His friends warned him that Port would make moves on him if he slept in the same bed, obviously. I mean, duh. At 5 in the morning on the 25th of August, Gabriel sends his last text. In the wee hours of the morning, Port gives Gabriel a drink laced with G with the intention to rape him, but again, it kills him. So something's going on with the dosages. I don't know if Port is doing it on purpose, he's trying to kill these people, or... You know what I mean? Or if he's just really sucks at measuring, like, you know, use a dropper and measure your shit. People are dying, which I guess he didn't care. I don't know. Or he was pushing the limits. And I guess everybody reacts differently to drugs. So maybe he's giving the same amount and it's just hitting people differently. Um, that afternoon, Port changes his phone number and he tells a friend that Gabriel had left without saying much. So he starts covering his tracks, right? He's saying that Gabriel just upped and left without saying anything and that he probably moved back to Spain to live with his ex-partner there. Now, Port waits a few days with Gabriel's dead body lying in his flat. Now, what do you think he's been doing with the dead body in his... Hello, Dennis Nilsson. If you remember the podcast with Dennis Nilsson, this guy loved young, slender, twinky guys... He loved raping them when they were unconscious and or sleeping with their dead bodies. So here we are again. Um, finally, he needed to dispose of the body, of course. So Port drags Gabriel to the nearby churchyard of Barking Abbey, which is 500 meters from his flat, and props him up in a sitting position against the graveyard wall to be found by a passerby. He plants an empty vial of G in his pocket, again, to make it look like an accidental overdose. Pathology reports confirm it was a drug overdose with very high and fatal levels of GHB. Okay, so instead of just dumping the body in front of his building, which that would look pretty suspicious to police, although the police in 2014 embarking um, were the worst. Port could have probably dumped every one of his victims just outside of his doorstep with an empty vial of G. And the police would not have put it together. That's how stupid this police is at this time. So there's a dead body in front of his building, empty vial of G. Okay, dead. Then 500 meters away in the churchyard, there's a dead body, an empty vial of G. It's the same. They're both gay. They're both young. They, they're both planted the same way in a sitting up position. Like the police 
at this point, it's obvious. And it's not just because I know the story. Sorry. It's obvious. But the police do not put two and two together in this case. So, meanwhile, the police are doing nothing. Basically, Port has an ongoing semi-consensual relationship with another victim. Although there is consensual sex, it later comes out in the court that there are doubts of being drugged and raped with him too. So the victims just continue. They don't all die, but he continues drugging and raping people. On September 18th, 2014, Port arranges to meet Daniel Whitworth. He's a 21-year-old ambitious chef from Gravesend in Kent. The two meet on a gay dating website called FitLads. And on his way to meet Port, Daniel texts his partner saying that he'll be home late. Once he gets to Port's, he goes in, feels comfortable. Obviously, Port is, you know, turning on the charm. Port offers him a drink. You know, he gets dizzy. He passes out. He rapes the 21-year-old who then dies of the drug overdose. Port, realizing Daniel is dead, begins to cover his tracks, as is his MO. So Port deletes his FitLads account uh, and under the cover of darkness, he carries Daniel's body to Barking Abbey and basically places him exactly where he left the last body. He sits him up against the wall. He puts an empty vial of G in his pocket. He takes his cell phone, so there's no evidence about communication between the two of them. But this time, he includes a fake suicide note in the left hand explaining that, you know, saying that he had taken his own life because he couldn't handle the guilt of having overdosed Gabriel. What? Yes, you heard me right. So what Port does is he's trying to pin the previous death of the guy from before, Gabriel, that he put in the churchyard. He's trying to blame that murder on this guy. Saying in Daniel's suicide note that he felt so guilty for murdering, whether accidentally or not, doesn't matter, it's not true, Gabriel, that he takes his own life. So the pathology uh, report obviously confirms the cause of death was GHB toxicity. So Port at this time, he's really trying to cover his tracks. So he starts drip feeding this new, like elaborate story to Gabriel's ex in Spain so that there's kind of a trail, right? So the story goes something like this. Port says that Daniel and Gabriel actually, so he's, this is all constructed to cover the murders. So he says that Daniel and Gabriel actually met at a party that he was at as well, and that the two of them left the party with Port's consent to go have sex at Port's flat. Then the boys headed out to Barking Abbey to have sex outdoors, which doesn't make any sense. Like if Port is saying in the story that he let those two boys go to his flat to have sex, then why would they go in a graveyard to do it? Like you would only have sex in a graveyard, well, I guess if it was a fetish of yours, or if you didn't have another place to go. But according to his story, they did. So I don't get that part. And that's where Daniel gave Gabriel a lethal dose of G, whether it was accidental or not. Doesn't matter. Uh, then, of course, he's racked with guilt. Daniel returns to the scene of the crime and he kills himself the same way in the same spot. So that's the fake story. That's fake news. Fake story. Uh, anyway. It might have been a good story, but later a handwriting expert demonstrates that without a doubt, the suicide note was written by Port. <laughs> oh my God. Well, no, but it gets worse. Wait, he denies that this is true. Like they have a handwriting expert that's like, uh, dude, you wrote this letter. Like this is later in the courts. Um, yeah, there's a hundred percent accuracy that you wrote this letter. And he's like, mm, no, I didn't. But like... <laughs> already sorry your credibility gone you've already lied to us once i mean the shit people get away with or have the gall to say and and think that they're going to get away with Ugh. meanwhile if somebody gives me the wrong change at the convenience store i'm like ooh, no you gave me a nickel too much here take that back like what's wrong with me he denies it's true of course this only comes out later so port is still a free man so Enter Port's last victim, Jack Taylor. He's a 25-year-old forklift driver living with his parents, and he's not out of the closet. So his only connection to gay life is the dating websites. He goes out one night, he has some drinks, then he gets on Grinder. He sees Port online, and they arrange to meet at Barking Station at quarter past three in the morning on September 13th, and they go back to Port's flat. 
As with the other men, Port pours Jack a tainted glass of something, which Jack drinks, then he passes out, and just before 7.30 a.m. that morning, Port blocks Jack on Grinder, which basically is telling us, I mean, that Jack is already dead because he's covering his tracks already. We know his M.O., so... Um, he deletes him, uh, his messages on Grinder. It deletes everything. Uh, then later, Port deletes his Grinder account completely, and then he texts his flatmate not to return home for a while. Uh, which, of course, we can only assume Jack is dead. He's at the, he's dead in the flat, so Port doesn't want his flatmate to come back and find the dead body. First of all, I have a question. Also, like, you have a flatmate? What? Somebody lives with you? Why are you bringing people home and like murdering them when? You ha- your flatmate could come home at any second. I don't, right? Unless, I don't know, I'm trying to think, maybe they are away on business a lot. But in this case, he actually had to text his flatmate, and, um, yeah, don't come home. And I wonder what excuse he used, honestly. Like, uh, no, I have to come home. I'm tired. What do you mean, don't come home? This is not a very good flatmate situation. And also, if you're a murderer, you should probably live alone. You know, wouldn't that be easier? I guess he couldn't afford it. Well, then downsize. Oh my God, I'm having a whole conversation with myself in my mind. Okay. Then Port waits for the cover of darkness, as is his MO again. And then he goes about his usual routine of dragging the body to the churchyard. He sits it up against a wall with an empty vial of G in the pocket. But this time he adds a tourniquet, some medical wipes, and some stab marks, some like needle marks in the arm. So he's really going all out now to make it look like a drug overdose. And then, of course, he tosses the guy's cell phone, Jack's cell phone. And then toxicology later confirms that Jack died from drug and alcohol overdose, which, you know what, I said before, so do not, if you're out there and you're experimenting with GHB, do not have it with alcohol. Not good. No. Bad. I'm not condoning drugs. This is just a public service announcement to say if it ever crosses your path and you do it don't do it with alcohol what am i saying oh yeah this is like so classic he's doing it again like it's the same mo he drags him to the churchyard there's an empty vial of g he props them up against the wall i mean it's astonishing the police have not put it together i mean what this is the fourth dead Young, gay, dead person, GHB, toxicology, pathology comes back. They all know how they die. They're all propped up in the same position, in the same place. I mean, one has a fake suicide note, there are little differences. It's so obviously connected, but it gets worse, wait. So we've got four dead guys. We've got four dead men, all drug overdoses, all G all within 500 meters of each other, three in the exact same spot, and the police don't make the connection, and the same woman walking her dog finds two of them. Can you imagine? Can you imagine you're walking your dog? When, okay, f- finding one dead body would be extremely traumatizing. Can you, well, I guess first you see it and you think it's somebody just passed out. Well, maybe you can tell. I think you can tell sometimes, right? But then she's, so she, she finds this body. She, I guess she calls 999, the police come, etc. Then she goes home. She's kind of telling, I'm sure she told people like, oh my God, guess what happened today? Blah, blah, blah. I was out for, uh, I was out for a walk with Spot and, you know, we found a dead body. And then she's probably calling her mother and, you know, telling everybody. And then what, like not long after she's out walking her dog again, doing the same route with Spot. And then she sees another dead body. I mean, that's like, I was going to say that's like winning the lottery twice, but no, these aren't good things. But you know what I mean? This is like, what are the, first of all, what are the chances? And you know what the chances are? Really good. If you're dealing with an asshole like Stephen Port, who has no imagination, what's, how dense is this murderer that he's killing them the same way and putting them in the same spot? Not only that, I mean, and it's not like on the other side of town or something. It's like in his backyard. And he already has a file with the police. So, I don't know why people are so stupid. But, well, you know who's more stupid though? The police. They haven't even put it together yet. Okay, so, 
Um, okay, so now there's a whole slew of victims who all of these ones survived, and they appeared in court, and they testified against Stephen Port. So, like I said, the police are still not putting two and two together. Not two and two. More than two and two, for God's sake. They can't put it together. So, Port is obviously free, and he keeps doing his thing. I don't know why these next ones didn't die. That's why I'm assuming, like, I think... I mean, G is going to hit different people different ways. I don't know if he lowered the dosage. Maybe he was like, okay, I shouldn't be killing people. This is too much hassle. Maybe I'll just drug them and rape them. Which is what happened with a whole bunch of them. Including his next victim, who's 22, but looks much younger and had been going through gender reassignment surgery. Of course, it never said if they were going male to female or female to male. I don't... They didn't say that. But anyway... He goes to Port's flat, he's offered a drink, and he was raped while unconscious. Port films the rape and shows it to the 22-year-old the next day. Like, this is how confident that this guy is getting, that he's not going to get caught. He does all that, films it, and then shows the victim the next day. Obviously, the guy gets super pissed off, they fight, and he ends up being a witness at the trial. Good. Well, okay. Port's next victim is 35 years old, which is a bit older than the others. They meet on Grinder in July 2015. The man, like, flat out says, hey, I do not want to do drugs. I don't do drugs. Yes, let's fuck. Um, but this time, Port has developed a new system for getting the drugs into the victim. So I guess he thought that this was more clever. So what he would tell them is that he likes to use a little plastic syringe to administer lubricant into the anus for intercourse. But of course, what do you think was in the syringe? Do you think it was lube? No, it's full of G. It's full of GHB. So... GHB shot directly into the butt is going to be absorbed much more quickly and it's going to be hit the, the victim a lot more strongly than if they took it orally, right? So when the syringe of G is shot up this man's butt, the 35-year-old victim, immediately he feels a burning and a tingling and a numbing. Luckily for him, he was able to dress and leave before falling unconscious because we know what happens when you're unconscious around Stephen Port. So this happened again soon after for his next victim, because in August 2015, Port meets a man on Grinder. The man makes it clear he's not into drugs. He doesn't want to do any drugs. At the flat, Port administers the syringe of G into his butt, pretending that it's lubricant. The man feels a pain. He gets dizzy, and he's incapacitated. And in that state, Port rapes him while he's falling unconscious. He testifies at the trial. The next victim knew Port from an earlier encounter. This victim made it clear in their grinder exchanges in September 2015 that he was not doing drugs at all. But again, at Port's flat, with the syringe, the man feels a sharp pain, a burning, gets dizzy. But he also manages to leave before falling unconscious and testifies at the trial. The next victim of Port to take the stand was a 24-year-old who had a sexual relationship uh, with Port for some time before. Uh, but had since uh, been with a partner, but now him and his partner had broken up and he was basically homeless. So he reaches out to Port just as a place to stay. You know, he's couch surfing basically. And what do you think? Port takes him in. Of course, he's like, great, a vulnerable, a young vulnerable victim. Perfect, come on. The young man, of course, is desperate to feel better. He turns to alcohol and drugs. So Port, of course, takes advantage of this. And one weekend, he gives him a line of drugs and they have consensual sex. But obviously, that wasn't enough or exciting enough for Port because the next weekend, he pulls the whole syringe thing and uh, he shoots G up the guy's ass. He has The guy gets palpitations and he raped him while he was unconscious. So the police investigation leads to a CCTV camera footage of Port walking with Jack Taylor, which you'll remember is his last victim who died, um, at Barking Station, which is where he meets everybody. And by the way, is that a good place to be meeting your victims at a train station? What? Okay, yes, it's busy, so maybe you can get lost in the crowds and stuff, but for sure, 100%, there's CCTV all over the place. So when the police are going to be investigating, it's going to be easy to catch you on camera. So does that, maybe you should like meet them in a deserted park or something. I don't, this guy's not the brightest bulb, but then neither are the police. So I guess they were evenly matched. Um, so basically, yeah, the police have the CCTV of Stephen Port with Jack Taylor at the train station. So during the trial, Port, first he denies that he ever knew Jack. And he pretended not to uh, recognize him when they showed 
um, him the photos of Jack, and he denies having him over to his flat to have sex with him. But eventually, the evidence proves otherwise, obviously. They're like, um, you sure you don't know Jack at all? And then he's like, no. And they're, they, then they pull up the footage, the CCT. Is this not you, sir? Yes. Is that Jack? I guess. Okay, so you do know him. Yes, I do. I mean, what an asshole. Okay, so he changes his story. He's like, oh, yeah, I remember him. We went to the graveyard. So this is his story. He said, we went to the graveyard to have sex. Then he took drugs and I left. I guess he died after I left. Mm -hmm. Of course, no one in the court believes him. Like this guy's credibility totally out the window. So conviction and life sentence for this asshole. On November 23rd, 2016, Port is convicted of the assaults of penetration, rapes, and murders of Anthony Walgate, 23, Gabriel Cavari, 22, Daniel Whitworth, 21, and Jack Taylor, 25, as well as the, oh God, they're in their 20s. They're just babies as well as the rapes of three other men he drugged and 10 counts of administering a substance with intent and four sexual assaults. He's found guilty on all counts. In total, 11 men were known victims of Port's crimes. Commenting on the case, Malcolm McAfee is the Deputy Chief Crown Prosecutor for CPS London, says, I quote, over a period of three years, the defendant committed a series of murders and serious sexual offenses against young men. Port manipulated and controlled these men through the chilling and calculated use of the drug GHB, which he administered without their permission. This was a technically challenging case, complicated by a significant amount of evidence taken from the numerous social media sites Port used. So the trial happens at the Old Bailey. The Old Bailey! I feel like the Old Bailey is like an old friend of ours. If you're a friend of the podcast and you've been listening, you remember the old Bailey. Um, we covered that with Jeremy Thorpe, went to the old Bailey. And also, Dennis Nilsson was at the old Bailey. And now we have Stephen Port at the old Bailey on November 25th, 2016. So Mr. Justice Openshaw sentenced Port to life imprisonment with a whole life order. So that bitch ain't going anywhere. Okay, so we can't talk about the story without talking about the obvious elephant in the room. I guess it's not really an elephant because I've been talking about it throughout the whole podcast. But the police investigation, the fucked up police investigation, we need to talk about this. So the bodies of the four men were found in the vicinity of Port's Flat in just over a year from late September 2014. Wallgate, which is the first, was outside the front door and the other three were in the nearby graveyard, right? The Metropolitan Police neglected to link the deaths, as we know, even though the Pink News website and the force's LGBT independent advisory group were warning of a serial murderer on the loose, but still the police had told them the crimes were not linked. This sounds super familiar. Again, if you're a friend of the podcast and you've been listening, you may remember that uh, Bruce MacArthur, remember that? Um, the police were not linking the murders or the disappearances of the men that were going missing in Toronto. Um, they were about the same age. They were, uh, there was a lot from the same ethnic group and they weren't putting it together. And also Bruce had had a brush with the law. So they had him in custody at one point And then he was, I mean, he got out just like Stephen Port uh, to, and then he went on to do all this murdering and the police never put two and two together. So that's what they're doing here as well. So, there's a BBC One documentary broadcast which happened in March of 2017, which pointed out, quote, a catalog of police failings. So, let's go through the failings of the police, because that's fun to do. I mean, not for the victims or their families, but let's go through the failings of the police. Crucial witnesses were not questioned. Okay, so for example, Port's neighbor had witnessed Stephen Port in a dazed, bizarre state holding a large container full of white powder with bottles of clear liquid. And the neighbor also reported receiving suspicious text messages from Port regarding Gabriel Cavari. So they never spoke to the, the neighbors about everything they had seen. So now even Gabriel Cavari's former roommate gets involved, John Pape. He does a simple internet research for other unexplained deaths in the Barking area, and he obviously is surprised to find huge glaring similarities in the case between Anthony Walgate uh, 
and Gabriel Cavari, especially, of course, the locations in which the bodies are found. However, the police didn't link the two cases. John Pape, again, the former roommate of Gabriel Cavari, after learning about Daniel Whitworth's death, which he was the third one, and its similarity to the other deaths, he calls the detectives and the police afraid for his own safety, and they assure him that they're like, hey, John, don't worry about it. These murders are not linked. Um, sorry, these deaths are not murders, and these deaths are not linked, and you have nothing to be afraid of. John offers himself to be interviewed by the police since he feels like he could have really relevant information about the death of his former roommate, Daniel Cavari, right? The police never get back to him. Fail. Fail. Also, the woman, remember the woman who was walking her dog Spot? I don't know if her dog's name is Spot. I just pretended that. Um, the woman who found Gabriel Cavari and Daniel Whitworth's bodies in the same location and almost exactly the same position is reported as saying that the police, quote, had no idea what they were doing, end quote. Again, fail. Then... Daniel Whitworth's stepmother says that when the police told her about her son's death, they made it sound like it was definitely an overdose from drugs before the investigation was even completed, and they were ignoring the obvious bruising under his arms, which would have meant that there was a third party involved. There were bruises there that he wouldn't necessarily would have been able to make by himself. It would have been somebody carrying him somewhere. They ignored that fail. Police took the suicide note that was found in Daniel's uh, hand for face value. They sent a sample to the family for confirmation of the handwriting, which P.S. Can I just say something? Everything is electronic these days. I mean, I don't even know my own handwriting. It changes with my mood. You know what I mean? I don't think I could, if you showed me uh, my brother's handwriting, I don't know if I could identify that and be like, yep, that's definitely, yep, that's his. I, I don't know. I feel like everything is texting, emailing, electronic. So that's not a good way of confirming or not confirming something. Um, the parents, of course, they're unsure. Well, duh, right? But the police record that uh, the parents are unsure, but they record it as a confirmation that it was Daniel's handwriting. And they never submit it for forensic analysis. Fail. So the parents of Daniel Whitworth also asked whether the police had investigated who was meant by, because in the note it said, the guy I was with last night. So the parents are like, well, what does that mean? What guy was he with last night? Stephen Port was trying to pretend like it was Gabriel Cavari who was with Daniel. But he doesn't say that in the note, so it just says, the guy I was with last night, which means there was somebody else, which means the investigation is open. But the response that the police say is that it would never be possible to find out all of the answers in a case. So they don't even, they just wash their hands. They don't even want to try with this. Daniel's stepmom is also basically told by police, quote, it is what it is, deal with it, end quote. Fail. Okay, so now Jack Taylor's sister, Jack Taylor being the, the fourth and final uh, victim of Stephen Port's, she reports that the police just called them and were basically like, Jack's dead. And that they had just um, accepted the theory that, you know, there was a syringe in the pocket, there was white powder in his wallet, needle marks on his arms. So obviously he had overdosed on drugs. Although she told them that her brother was very, very anti-drugs. So she knew that that was a total fraud. She and her another sister contact the police 11 days after his death for an update on the investigation, and they were told there is none. They also did some research for themselves, and they come across three previous cases, but the police responded by denying that there was any connection. So much like um, John Pape, who did his own internet research, the sisters of Jack were doing their research. They find the other cases that were extremely similar, and they're like, um hello? And the cops are like, no, 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 there's no connection there. No, no, you guys are wrong. Two weeks after his, after Jack's death, the police agreed to take the sisters to where Jack's body had been found in the cemetery and to Barking Station and told them that CCTV footage of Jack and another man had been found. So they're like, okay, so 
there was somebody who is this other person in the video they're totally surprised by the fact that they had not been notified at all of this new evidence and they're even more surprised um, to be told that the police were not even attempting to identify the other man you have somebody who is dead you have cctv from the night the person is with someone else in the video and you do not even attempt to identify who they're with. I, I'm tired of saying fail. Like that's not even, it, this is a beyond a failure at this point. So next, uh, the sisters requested that images of the other man in the video be made public in order to identify him. Uh, yeah, of course, of course they need to be made public. The police are reluctant, saying that they, they, that they do not normally release CCTV images, but eventually they give in, and guess what? Two days later, Port is identified from the images and arrested. So basically, the families of the victims are the ones that solved the crime, not the police. Following Port's conviction, the Independent Police Complaints Commission opened an investigation into whether 17 police officers should face disciplinary action. Fuck yeah. The families have also opened a civil claim against the Metropolitan Police. Uh, fuck yeah. The Metropolitan Police also reported in 2016 they were re-examining 58 unexplained deaths involving date rape drugs, although a spokeswoman said that they have nothing to su suggest that Port is linked to any of them. So Stephen Port's GHP dealer uh, also got in trouble. His name is Gerald Matuvu, and he was known to have supplied Port with the GHP that was used in the killings. So he's arrested in 2019, and he's sentenced to 31 years in prison for the murder of actor and businessman Eric Michaels. Using similar methods to Port, Matuvu had targeted Michaels on Grinder and given him a fatal dose of GHB. Wow. I wonder if Matovu um, taught Stephen Port how to do the whole GHB thing, or if it was vice versa. I wonder who taught who. That That's interesting. Anyway, the asshole's in jail. Sentenced to 31 years for murder. Shouldn't you get life? I mean, you murdered somebody. 31 years. I saw a picture of him. He doesn't seem that old. He could get out. I mean, let's say he's 30, 40, 50, 60. Okay, so you're still young. Then he gets out, so you murder somebody and you're out in your 60s? Mm, that doesn't seem long enough to me. And so ends the GHB-riddled, murderous story of the grinder killer, Stephen Port. In popular culture, of course, you know, whenever a story is like this, with Grindr, which is such a widely used app in the gay community, there's going to be things that happen in popular culture, like documentaries and movies. So in 2017, the BBC aired a documentary called How Police Missed the Grinder Killer, which examines the botched investigation into Port's murders, which I think I would just get so frustrated if I watched. I, I can't even... I would just throw things at the TV. Uh, and then in 2019, it was announced that the BBC would produce a drama thriller called The Barking Murders, which is going to be based on the investigation led by the families of Port's victims. See, that one I would watch because this is like the families taking control. Um, Stephen Merchant's going to be in it, Sheridan Smith, Jamie Winstone. Uh, and then in January 21, 2021, of course, it was announced that the broadcast of the program, which is already filmed, and now they changed it to, uh, and it's called Four Lives, which I like because it's kind of an, it's an homage to the four victims, um, you know, instead of the murderer. Uh, anyway, it's going to be delayed because of Corona. So, but keep your eyes open for that. Okay, so what really stands out for me in this story is the police fuck-up investigation. I mean, it is beyond ridiculous how inept that this investigation was. And I have a theory as to why. Can you guess what it is? If you've been listening to my podcast, we've talked about this before. Whoever guesses it gets a cookie. I believe that the ineptitude of the police force in barking was due to a homophobic uh, and institutionalized homophobic and overall sort of homophobic attitude within the police force. There is nothing, no other possible reason I can think of for them to be so 
blatantly disregarding of obvious connections in the different deaths of these young gay men. So they knew they were gay and it was drugs and they didn't care. They didn't care. If, okay, if these were young white girls being found in graveyards, what do you think would have happened? Exactly. Let's flip it. If these were young black men found in graveyards, what do you think would happen? Something very similar as to what happened in this case. These were young gay men. They knew they were on Grinder. They knew they were doing hooking up, doing sex, doing gay sex. Shame on them. And then doing the drugs. So obviously they're low lives. They're low lives. I mean, this is just complete homophobic police work at its best. There is absolutely zero other possible reason why they would be so inept. If you can do a simple, as a former flatmate of one of the victims, you can do a simple internet search and find out more connective, you know, reasons uh, and find more connections between the the deaths that, and put it together more than the police have. If it's not a culture of homophobia at the police station, then please tell me what it is. Because at least if it's a culture of homophobia, then we know that they blatantly disregarded the evidence. And then you're like, okay, at least that's what's happened. But if it that's not the case, and they really are that inept, that is even worse. How can you be so bad at your job? Can you imagine? My God. I mean, I get nervous if I miss an email. And, and meanwhile, they're not connecting. God, I hope heads rolled for this. I mean, I really hope somebody got the boot, got two boots and some mittens and maybe some earmuffs. And very similar, obviously, it's not just in Barking, but it was also in Toronto with the Toronto police when they were fucking up the investigation here when men of color were going missing. And well, who cares? It's men of color, right? Oh, sorry. Gay men of color. So, you know, not top of the list for the police force. Um, also, let's talk about the similarities for a second. If you heard the podcast with Dennis Nilsson, you can see the similarities between Nilsson and Port because they both liked young, boyish, androgynous kind of guys. And then they like to overpower them. Um, they like to have unconscious sex with them. Okay. They like to rape them, uh, and take power over them and rape them. So there's this sort of similarity between Dennis Nilsson and Stephen Port. So to think, so, so to, so to dive into a mind like that, you have to wonder like why, so it's power. Obviously it's power. If you're raping somebody who's unconscious, why is it better that they're unconscious? I wonder though. I get the power thing, okay, you feel powerless in your life, you're getting power, you're taking somebody else's power, it makes you feel good. Fine. But the unconscious thing is more like, isn't that less power? Because they can't fight back. Are you afraid that they're going to fight back? Are you afraid that they're going to fight back and you're not going to win? It just seems like an extra step of like lechery. That's just an extra disgusting step. Also drugging somebody who doesn't, uh, do drugs or is unwilling or and slash unknowing that there is drug taking is complete. That is one of my, listen, I've done my share of partying and the number, I mean, that's like a golden rule of partying, you know, with your friends and going out and everything. Nobody, I mean, you do not cross that line. You never, ever give somebody something without their knowledge. That is so wrong. That, that, that is, for me, that's, that's the same as rape. You're basically raping them because you're, you're, you're taking away their ability to consent and you're administering something um, without them knowing, uh, without their consent, and then they're just going to have to deal with the consequences of that. Like it's just, it takes all the power again, power. It takes all and the choice away from the person. And it's just 
one of the worst things I can actually think of. And I don't know where that stems from. It never happened to me or anybody, anybody that I know personally. Um, but it's, it's honestly one of the worst things for me that you could do to a person is to drug them, um, without their knowledge, you know, or consent. It's just disgusting. So he's an asshole. He's in jail, and uh, the streets and grinder are a safer place. Having said that, play safe, guys. Be careful out there. Thanks for listening, guys. I'll see you in the next episode of True Gay Crime. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to find the True Gay Crime Facebook page and follow us on Instagram at True Gay Crime. And we'd love to hear from you. Do you have an LGBTQ crime story from your city? You can send your story to truegaycrime at gmail.com and I'll share it on a future episode of the show. Did you know you can subscribe, rate, and review True Gay Crime on Apple Podcasts? It would mean everything to me if you did because it helps me create content you like and it lets Apple know to share it with more people. Thank you for listening. And remember, always look behind you, lock your doors, tell someone where you're going, and look out for each other. Why can't we all just get along?